With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history.
group Rare Gems Odyssey, and that's a rare song there. So, and that goes out to the Broncos who will Denver Broncos who will win the Super Bowl. If you're listening to this live, and I hope you are, but if not, we have a lot of folks that listen on a delayed basis and whenever at their convenience. But this is Greg Rashid. I'm the host of the Root and Roots program, and we come on on Fridays and Saturdays. And I'm being very hesitant as I say that because lately I've been doing shows almost every day at 6 p.m., but they're always at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And if you'd like to join in the conversation we're going to have this evening, the number is 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315. And I'm waiting for my guest here who's going to be talking about place kicking in the NFL. That's going to be something that's timely. It's still football season and everything, but... I'm going to play another song. And by the way, I just want to say hi to those of you who are not listening live but listening on a either on a Wednesday or on a Saturday on KUHS Denver Radio and Television, the creation of the great Henry Archer letter. I want to thank him for that. And thank for all my friends out there and all the folks that listen to me on that station. Continue to listen there. And listen, besides listening to my show, listen to the other shows on there because they're doing a wonderful job over there. I'm just honored to be a part of that. So as I wait for my guests, I'm going to play another. Here's a football-related song in a sense. This is um, I'm going to do Roderick Ellison, and he's on the uh, keyboard here. And I'm going to play First and Goal. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show.
All right, that was Roderick Ellison, and that was First and Goal. And I believe that my guest is on the line right now. And, you know, I like it when I have on my program folks who are not just authorities as far as maybe locally and nationally, but international authorities on a particular subject. And I'm just honored to have on this evening uh, the author of the book, Place Kicking in the NFL, A History and Analysis. And he also is um, the foremost authority, as I was saying, a statistician for professional kicking, particularly the NFL, a student of the game since 1970. He has met virtually every place kicker and punter in the NFL. That's amazing, including kickers from the 20s through the 60s. And just you know, he's also the founder of the Cape and Kicking Academy in Essex, Massachusetts. And I'm happy to have on here pro football historian Rick Gonzalez. Are you there, Rick? Yes, yes, I am, Greg. All right, I just want to say that I have been waiting and just hoping to have you on here. I've had this book for almost two years now, and I when I first got it, I said, man, I got to get him on because the book is so. I mean, it's just. You have done your more than your homework. I mean, you. This is the Bible. If you don't know about the history of place kicking in the NFL up until 2014, you you know this is the place to go with that. And I just want to thank you for writing this book. And just tell my listeners, and you can call in listeners at four two four six seven five eight three one five. What got you? Because I, I didn't see in the book exactly what inspired you to decide to devote your mainly your life to the history of place kicking in the NFL in particular. I know that you played football in the 60s, and I think you were a punter, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah, but what what yes. made uh, you decide to – oh, go ahead. Well, first of all, thanks for the compliments, Greg. Uh, when I got out of college, I knew I wasn't uh, uh, tuned up enough to make the NFL. So instead of uh, going ahead and try that route, I started investigating the sport, watching how those guys kick. And then I noticed that there were quite a few statistics that weren't kept at that time, between 1969 and 1970. So I wanted to get more on that part of the game so I would be able to evaluate uh, place kickers and how well that they do. And then I could use that information each year to chart their career. And then this thing just took on a life of its own after that. Well, I'm glad you did that. And I know a lot of other people are because it's really – Great document on the history of place kicking. And the thing is, kickers, they really, except for some instances like Adam Vinatieri and some folks like that, in actuality, a lot of them don't get the praise that they deserve, especially punters. It's like they just come in and out of the league. You know, they just come in and out of the league. No one remembers them. And talking about, you know, covering the Denver Broncos as I did for a number of years, I just remember how the Kickers were really off to the side when you go in the locker room, and they were in their own little world. And I want you to talk about the kicker mentality, because I mean they're pro, they're football players, but actually there are a lot of folks. Not I don't think it's as much as it used to be, but there was a time when a lot of folks didn't consider them part of the team or really football players. No, you're right. That was the uh, new taking on these guys. I mean, that's started to let up now uh, over the last several years. And you see a guy like Vinatieri come in with seconds left, and he did it in two Super Bowls. And you connect to your team, you can't tell me that those guys didn't feel great in the locker room afterwards. I mean, uh, the offense, uh, 
I've got to slow it down. They can't complete a drive. And you know you've got a guy you can count on to come in there and nail that game. And, of course, that that's the start of it. And these guys got a mentality of their own. You go to a training crank camp, Greg, and you'll see the kickers off to the side. No one coaching oh, yeah. them, nobody working with them. You know, and that's sad. Right. I mean, you wouldn't have a, a quarterback there without a quarterback coach or a receiver oh, no. coach. Oh, no. You, you know, they, they sit they eat their lunches separately from everyone else. They have their own, you know, it's their own little world. And I I don't, you probably have met uh, Stefan Fastest. Are you familiar with him? No, he wrote not. a book. He wrote a book a number of years ago. I interviewed him, actually, about the Denver Broncos. He wanted to, he went out for the team. He was a, He's a reporter, sports reporter, and also a, a great, um, player of just many games, you know, card games and all, but he decided, in particular Scrabble, but he decided that he was going to write a story on and write a book about his experience trying out for a team, and he wrote a number of teams in the Denver Broncos in 2000, I think it was 2005, 2005, 2006, agreed to have him come to training camp. And he just talked about the experience of how he was, set apart more or less from the regular players, and he looked at him differently. And he looked at him differently, for one, because he was a reporter, and he was older than everyone else. But the right, thing right, is, he eventually... Now, but you bring it up. Yeah. And he, you know, what happened eventually that he became accepted because he made a field goal during a practice, and also he made one in a in a uh, practice game, not in the preseason. I don't think he did a preseason game. But he just made one, and it made everyone happy. He went through that experience. So sure. it's a – yeah, go ahead. Yes, that uh, – you know, you've got to make your mark. And uh, uh, when these guys see that you're not going to make – well, in his case, uh, he meant business when he went out there to play. I do remember reading that now, coming through that uh, a few years ago. And uh, he went out there, and he did his thing, and uh, he proved to them that he had the leg and uh, that he could do it. You know – and you know, the first time when I was when I was a little kid, the first time I had any inkling when I was looking at football games, I didn't understand all the rules yet. But the first name that stuck in my head growing up was not Jim Brown, was not Johnny Unitas, but it was Lou the Toe Groza, the name. And this guy, he would come on the field and looking at it on a black and white television. He looked like he was about a hundred years old, <laughs> but he, you know, but he was a. And talk a little about him because he was a ama- he's an amazing kicker. Lou Groza uh, made the field goal what it is today. Uh, he went to Ohio State, then of course he went into the service. And uh, Paul Brown heard a lot about him, and he sent Lou a pair of kicking cleats, so that while he was in the service, he could still practices kicking. Well, after the service, he came back and he joined the Cleveland Browns, who was a member of the OAAFC, uh, the All-American Football Conference. Right. And uh, in their first game, they're playing the Miami Hurricanes. And uh, one of the uh, – Paul Brown comes up and says, look, this is a long kick. Do you think you can make it? And Groza says, yeah, why not? So he lined up and he boots a 52-yard field goal, which is a long kick at that time. And uh, he won over the teammates right there. And matter of fact, the defensive lineman, one of the defensive linemen, come up to him and says, that was a hell of a kick, Groza. So he won over the opposition. Right. Now, that's, that's amazing. 
Now, in 1953, Rosa made an unheard of 23 of 26 field goals for 8.85 average. Never done before. Never heard of. At one point, he reeled off something like 20 straight kicks between field goals and extra points. Never heard of. And Groza's record from that time stood up until the 1990s when Jan Stenerud broke it. That's incredible. And uh, I mean, the other thing about Lou, you've got to remember, he was an offensive lineman. And this guy's taking a beating during a game, but yet he's got to you know, keep his legs well enough so that he can kick a football after uh, pass blocking, running pass, uh, uh, traps, and so forth. Those guys take a beating. And yet he came in there and he, he did the job. Became the first 1,000-point scorer in NFL history. I mean, he's really, you know, reading about him and just, you know, just bringing – he brought so many memories back about, you know, watching him on old television and all, and just saying, God, it, just an incredible guy because I didn't know all that background about him. It was just really something. You know, but the funny thing, the first thing I turned to in your book – and you're going to find this funny, but I turned to the barefooted kickers part. Because mm-hmm. uh, I, fa- I was just fascinated. I've always been fascinated in that, and that's like, it doesn't really exist now that I know of. No, they kind of, they banned it. Uh, Tony Franklin was the first barefoot kicker in pro football, and uh, he played for Philadelphia and the Patriots. Now, if you feel the top of your foot, you'll feel a bump and a bone, all right? That's the cuneiform right. bone, and that's where these guys would hit the ball. It wouldn't hurt your foot. I mean, it was solid bone there. And a lot of people figured, wow, you can kick the ball a lot further barefoot. Well, no, you can't. All it did is give you a better feel of the football between the ball and your foot. And then, of course, you had Mike Lansford come in and Paul McFadden, uh, guys like that, and... Uh, it stayed vogue for about five years and then disappeared. And then, of course, you get up here. I'm in New England. And Franklin in the wintertime had to keep his uh, thick boot on to keep his foot warm. That's amazing. You know, it's, so, it's something. I guess Rick was Rich Carlos was the last basketball uh, kicker in the NFL. Denver Broncos. Right. Denver Broncos. And now, I want to add Go ahead. There's a good story about him. It's kind of a little grotesque. Carlos was having a bad year, and uh, he got a package in a locker room. And I can't believe anybody did this. He opens up the package, and there's an artificial leg in it, and there's a note saying, why don't you use this the next time you kick? <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Honest to God, that, really. All right, that's something. But, you know, I'm glad, you know, it has been, you know, reading your book, you, you said it's, it's banned not only in the pros but in, I guess in Pee Wee League high schools, they just don't do it at all anywhere. It's terrible. I mean, even up here in New England, if a youngster kicks uh, three field goals in the season, that's a lot. What happens is these guys on the high school level rather open up the sport and go for it or go for first downs or go for touchdowns. And a lot of times that doesn't work. Second of all, they don't have a real true understanding about what a youngster can do for a football team. And my job at my camp is to produce the best kicker possible. And I've been doing this for 46 years, and I've got my own training method. So when those kids leave, they're ready to step in. And sometimes the coach doesn't know what to do with them. That, that's sad. That's, 
Yeah, that, that really is because you know it's a if you got a great kicker, if you can you know you can get your way through college and all, and then in the pros, I mean you got you got a decent salary going on there, but also you become. As I was saying earlier, you become, unless you're like an Adam Vinatieri or someone like that, you become this unknown person. Right. Yeah, what is it, yeah, what is it, and you talk about the personalities of a kicker. Go into more detail about that, the mental well, aspect. Funny, a lot of these guys, uh, uh, they're introverts. Uh, they keep to themselves. They're kind of cerebral. And that works for them. And then you'll get some guys that are kind of loose, that like to joke around, uh, not get uptight. Uh, they get their own personalities on that. And no matter what personality you have, so long as your head functions right when you're doing your job, that's all that counts. And a lot of problems that these pro kickers have, college, high school, my first question to them is, where's your head? That's what all right. lies. And so when you know someone like um, what happened in the Minnesota Seattle uh, playoff game, where Walsh misses the field goal, the chip shot actually at the end. Right. That cost. What you know? Have you talked to? Have you have you ever talked to him prior uh, to that? I never oh. met. I never met Blair, but I did send him an email, and I'm sure I'll probably meet him this uh, coming season on the pros. Uh, what happens is that a lot of teams come to the wing when I go to the hotel at night and I introduced myself to these kickers. That's how I made friends over the years. But uh, I wrote him an email and says, look, you need to put that behind you because if you're going to let that haunt you, you're not going to have a good season. Second of all, yeah. the minute he lined up for that kick, I knew it was going to go straight ahead because he didn't allow uh, enough angle to drive the ball for the uprights that close. He kicked it right straight ahead. That's amazing. You, you know, you could see that and. Can you, you know, when you meet someone, or you look at these games, can you automatically tell if someone, well, I shouldn't say if you look at the games, but when you actually meet a kicker, meet some of these kickers, can you, like, look them in the eye without even seeing their technique and just say, this guy's not going to be in the pros for long, or can you see that? Uh, Yes, I can. I've seen that in uh, several cases over the last uh, 20 years or so, uh, even when I get to training camp. You can see it. You can watch the way they walk on the field. Uh, I like a guy who's cocky, that's aggressive, and that's not afraid to step in and do it. And sometimes you'll see a little hesitancy or you'll see a little fear in the kicker's eyes, and that's no good. You can't, well, have you, you can't be right. on that plane. Now, have you ever had an opportunity to talk to Scott Norwood? Because that guy, his career was done after this Super Bowl when he yeah, missed that's, the field goal against the Giants. Yeah. Right. Yes. Have I, you ever got a chance to talk to him? I have before the kick, and I sent them some information after the kick. And he's at the point, even now, he doesn't still want to talk about it. And that's understandable. But yet, you know, you missed the major kick. The press was all over him. Teammates were all over him. And uh, he did come back the following year and have a good season. But then after that, that was it. And I thought that was sad. The guy was a good kicker. Yeah, but that well, one miss, you're branded for life. And that's all it takes, you know. That's that, and I hope the kicker from Minnesota is not branded for life because of what happened with him. But it could happen. Well, I think that between uh, myself and then there are several other people too that uh, wrote him 
on his uh, Facebook page, he's got the support of a lot of people. And I think people are a little bit more understanding now uh, about what these guys go through because they saw from what Vinatieri did in those Super Bowls, all of a sudden that was the wake-up call. So I think he has the support of everybody. But there again, you can't carry that miss into this coming season or you're done. Yeah, that's it. And listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315 and talking to Rick Gonzalez, author of an excellent book, Place Kicking in the NFL, A History and Analysis. Now, you know, um, I'm curious, too, because coming, living in Denver for 20 years and covering the Broncos, I want you to talk about the issue of altitude, because there are people outside of Colorado who believe that some of the records that have occurred there you know, Matt Prater, Jason Elam, the kicks that they've made, that actually they should have, you know, they should be considered with a parenthesis around them, an accident or something, that these aren't actually true kicks. Well, the year obviously is very thin there. The football's going to travel seven, a uh, good seven yards further than what it would do at sea level. And uh, I'm sure you remember that 65-yard field goal uh, a few years ago uh, oh, I was Ola there. Kimmel. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, I I knew all. In fact, all come to my camp uh, and worked with me for a while. And uh, of course, Jason Elam hit that 63 yard at the time the record. And uh, the ball just carries further, obviously because of the thin air. When Dempsey kicked his 63 yarder in 1970, it was at Tulane Stadium, and that was a little bit below sea level. So that took a lot more effort and drive into the ball in order for that thing to travel 63 yards at that, right. you know, at that level, that elevation. And even in your book you talk about the fact that some folks criticize him because of his handicapping with the special shoe that he had. Yeah, Greg, I mean, that the, this guy overcame a lot of obstacles to get right. into the National Football League, and that's just the way the man was born. And for him to come out and have a great pro career and do what he did, you work with what you got. The guy deserves an awful lot of credit, and he was an inspiration to a lot of people who might have had physical problems like that. He's done a lot for people like that. I think that was just kind of a cheap shot. And they went after him, too, in that Cincinnati. You know, uh, they said that it shouldn't be marked down because he had that special cleat. That That's absurd. I know, and you still, and I, I brought that up because you still, from time to time on social media and in the press, sometimes you'll still see someone talking about that kick from 1970. Like, well, it's not real because of this, you know, because he had well, a special shoe on. What happened? Nothing since then took place in the last 11 seconds of that game. After they got the kickoff, Al Dodd ran it out of bounds. Uh, way up near the 25 or the 28. And then I believe it was Bill Kilmer completed one of the pass. Now there's three seconds left in the sending in Dempsey. And Don Creaky was doing that game, and Creaky says, <laughs> they're sending in this Dempsey guy to kick a long field goal. Now, meanwhile, on the field, Alex Karras, who had a really good sense of humor, he's looking at his teammates and says, you know something? I'm not even going to bother to rush him. This guy's never going to make that kick. Well, he hit it. And if you watch that tape, the live tape, you can hear him hit that football. And the thing took off like a cannon shot. And then Tulane Stadium went quiet. And when that ball broke the uprights, everybody went crazy. 
And when that kick hit the news, a couple of newscasters would not uh, say what happened until I got it verified because it was so, you know, That's amazing. Uh, such a blast. I mean, that, that is really something. That was really an amazing kick. But, you know, it's a funny thing that um, there was a time. I don't think it's like it is now. I think it's different now. But talk a little bit because you get into the thing about the soccer-style kickers, and a lot of them are from other countries. In fact, there's the infamous quote. I don't know who actually said it about someone kicked the field, uh, field goal and said, I kick a touchdown. You're right. You're right. Alice Karras used to make fun of Gary Premian. That's it. Uh, with that phrase. Yeah, exactly. But, and and uh, there used to be this really, and I have to say, it was like a, a really discrimination against some of these guys because a lot of them were like very little guys and they couldn't do anything but kick a, kick a soccer spot style, and that was it. And talk about that and how kind of that whole perception changed and they became part of the team. Sure. Uh Back in uh, 1957, uh, a man by the name of Fred Bednarski kicked the first field goal soccer style in the United States. It was not the Goblacks. And uh, Fred's still alive in Austin, Texas, by the way. And uh, everybody was just shocked to see this. And uh, a couple of people afterwards says, we thought he was going to kick the ball off to the sidelines because he, you know, lined up on an angle. Now, with soccer-style kickers, you've got more surface on your foot to hit it. You can direct the football where you want it. You can get that swing and torque of your body into the ball where these little guys can give that leg snap and drive that ball wherever they want. That's the advantage it has over the straight-on kickers. And then, of course, when the Gogolaks came in, uh, there were still skeptic people uh, watching them, but when Pete blasted a 50-plus yard field goal in an exhibition game that stopped all talking. And then uh, the late uh, Lou Michaels, who was also a good kicker, they asked Lou, what do you think of these soccer-style kickers? And Lou says, it won't last because people don't walk that way. <laughs> so that's how, they, that's how they came along. And they, all they did was refine the skill because you have more kids playing soccer, you have more kicking camps, you have more written material on it, and you have more videos on it. So they just took this method of kicking and refined it more, and uh, it took over in the NFL after 1986. That's it. And I guess the last uh, straight-on kicker was uh, Mark Mosley? You're right. Yeah. Absolutely. And he, he was the right. last one that- yeah, that's it. You know, and uh, you know, I want to talk about it too because you mentioned in the book the training that because you rarely see like a five-five, one hundred and thirty-pound kicker now. These guys look. Right. You know, I mean, they are football players size. They can tackle. They don't play both. You know, they they're not like Lou Groves playing a offensive tackle and kicking a ball. But talk about you know how that. Perception has changed now. These guys actually are trained to actually make tackles on kickoffs, et cetera. Right. If you remember, Vinatieri graced his way to the New York, uh, the England Patriots when he tackled Herschel Walker from That's behind right. during his rookie season. And uh, you know the term bigger, stronger, faster is applying to all athletes today. 
And today's athlete, compared to the kickers, like you said, going back to the 70s uh, and 80s even, today's kicker is at least three to four inches taller and 25 pounds heavier. And that's due to lifting, uh, working out, keeping that leg strong, and becoming a complete football player. Because I know that that Jason Elam was like, I know he was squatting over 350, I think. Yep. At one point, I mean, he was like on, yeah. the, you know, one of the top three, you know, squatters on the rack in, with the Denver Broncos, and that, that's something. And you wouldn't see that twenty, thirty years ago with a kicker. No, you wouldn't. And of course, these guys know now. You better be conditioned if you want a long career, and if you don't want to lose your job. That's yes, what you do. And it isn't a strong leg so much; it's leg snap. You need that leg width into the ball. And that's yeah, what they concentrate on when they work out. They have their own, you know, their own lifting program that benefits what they do. Yeah. Also, there's a key thing, too, that you mentioned in the book. Talk about the holder that actually is holding the ball, because that's the important thing. Because you talk about Lou, you mentioned uh, Lynn Dawson and what he learned with the Kansas City Chiefs. So talk about that and what makes a good holder well, for a kicker. You had good hold, any good kicker is going to automatically have a good holder. But before that, you need a good center. You need a guy that can put that football seven yards behind right. the line of scrimmage, right under what they call under the hood, when you see the holder put his hands out. It should be right at the armpit. The holder has to be a sure-handed person. There's no question about that. Because when he receives that snap, he's got to put the ball down, make sure lace isn't facing, and get that hand out of the way. And it's got to be done in like two-tenths of a second. And he needs a lot of concentration, stay loose. And when you watch them kneel down, you'll see that the uh, the right leg should go down and the left leg up. And right in front of that toe, they'll make an indentation with their hand uh, because the kicker will select the spot. And if that fall is off a little bit, chances are good you're going to miss. And then there are holders now who can spin the ball in the air and put it down and not show you a lace. So they're, they're one third of the success of a kicker. Yeah, that's really amazing. And that's why I always tell folks, when you look at a football game, be it college, high school, or pros, look at the formation on the kicking team in particular. Don't look at the ball so much, but look at how they're setting up. And you can see where the ball is actually going to go, if it's going to be made or not. Right. Right. And, you know, it's funny. Another thing that people miss, we're talking about guys that kicked in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. If you remember back then, a lot of players used to use stick them to help them catch right. the ball. Uh, the ball would take a pounding outside if you were in a, a frozen climate, a muddy climate, a dirt climate. They didn't have a lot of footballs that they uh, integrated into the game. Then you had a kick that was on the field. But then in 1999, the K-ball came in. And that ball is only used for kicking. And then you wonder why there's been a lot of 60-plus yard field goals. That's one of the reasons. They're kicking a brand-new ball. And, folks, you know, a lot of people don't even realize that, and that's very important. I'm glad you brought that up in the book also. And talk about, speaking of footballs, we're getting ready to get out of here too, but um, talk about the original. That It was just so funny reading the dawn of pro football in the early 
teens and 20s in this country in football and college. And talk about, in the early NFL, talk about the type of football that they had back then. Right, Spalding made them, and they looked like a watermelon. And they were, right, they were a good 26 inches around. And it was not made for passing, obviously. But with the blunt nose, it was great for the drop kick, which, of course, is brought on from rugby. So that's what these guys used to do. They'd get the ball, and it would be step, plant, drop it straight down, and just as it hits the ground, you kick it. And then all of a sudden, the square-toe shoe uh, was developed to give kickers a stronger hit on the ball. But it's one tremendous skill, and uh, that lasted up until 1934. And you had guys like Jim Flop, uh, Albert Bloodgood, Patty Driscoll, uh, Fats Henry. These guys were good. They brought this thing down to a skill. They could have for 50 yards or so drop kicking a football. But today you can't do it because the ball is too – well, you can do it. But the ball but is then, then Doug Flutie – is Doug Flutie the last person to do a drop kick in the pros? Yes, he was. He was against yeah. the Miami Dolphins. That's right, because I remember seeing him do that. Do you think it now, I know because of the ball, it won't come back. Do you think there'll be, someone will come in the league, some coach, and just say, we should just do this again? It's doing something yeah, different, because everyone wants to be the same, but. Right, right. My suggestion is bring back the drop kick and make it worth four points. Oh, we man. already have, you know, one point for an extra point, two points for right. safety or a play after the touchdown. Three points for field goal, six for a touchdown. Bring back the drop kick. Make it work four that points. That'll make things interesting. Yeah. Well, that certainly would. What do you think, before we go, what do you think about the fact that they put the – because it, obviously it's not in the book because it came up this year, but last year, I mean. But, you know, changing the extra point yardage. Greg, I'm telling you, the kicks, uh, they're down tremendously. Last year or two years ago, it was 99.6. This year was point nine oh three. They had nine extra points blocked. That's unheard of. And I'll tell you one more thing. I believe it was on the twelfth weekend in the NFL, kickers missed the same number of extra points as they did field goals. That never ever happened in the history of the sport. Well, the NFL got what they wanted, you know. They wanted yes, they wanted they the challenge on the one hand. You know. I don't know and who was actually complaining about it being too easy. That's what I couldn't understand. The rule committee well, came up with this. Well, it's too easy now. And, of course, you saw what happened to Gus Gusty in the championship game against Denver. That's right. And I was very happy about that one. <laughs> and I know you're sad about it, but I was very happy about that. And, and speaking of that game, do you think that um, that Belichick should have gone for the field goal like six minutes to go rather than going fourth down? Prior to the yes, other fourth down when they had it, yeah. And that's happened before to him in a couple of other games. And this is no knock against Bill. I mean, he's a tremendous football coach, no question about it. But uh, this happened several times before where they could have went for the field goal and they didn't. They went for it and they didn't make it. Well, thank goodness they didn't make it. Sometimes you kind of wonder, uh, uh, does it affect uh, his confidence in his kicker since he missed that extra point? That's just yeah. what he's thinking. Yeah, you know, but I'm I'm glad that happened. You know, following the Broncos, uh, I'm just glad that happened there. But I want to say one more thing too, because I, you know, it's in the book, but updated stats. Tell my listeners 
the average percentage of a successful field goal now versus let's say nineteen nineteen seventy. Okay. Uh in nineteen seventy if you made between fifty and sixty percent of your kicks, you were considered good. You were considered uh, capable. You were fine. And then ten or fifteen years later it went from uh, 60 to 70 to 70 to 80. And then now it's either 80 high or 90%, or you're going to be looking for a new job. It's hard to be 50% kicks. I mean, that's amazing. That is really yeah. something. But it's, but it's kind of like, um, you know, one time quarterbacks, they could hit like 45% of their, to 50% of their passes. They were considered great. Right. If someone does right. that now, they're they're not even going to make they're not even make training camp. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's, but uh, you know that's, that's how amazing. things change in the sport. Yeah, that is. Now something, listen, but, one more thing I wanted to ask you, uh, since you are big on Denver, have you ever run into uh, Gene Mingo? Do you remember that name? Oh yeah, he was. I've never met him personally, but yeah, I think he's still out there. Yeah, Gene Mingo was with. Um, he was with them in the 1960. I didn't. I wasn't out there then. But yeah, oh yeah, Jim Mingo, you know, one of the first, maybe the first African American kicker, because he was a wide yes, receiver was. too. Yeah. Yes, he was. And uh, I had a couple of good chats with him on the phone because I contacted him too about the book. And uh, I'll tell you, in the early years, that guy was a fine kicker, but yet being able to play another position, uh, and that just shows you. Uh, what someone like that can do for a team. You know, I'll tell you, I'm all for bringing a guy in as a kicker. I want to play another position, another thing. That can, I'm, I'm, I like to see these guys be versatile. But that's right. my own take on it. you think that's ever going to come back in the pros? No. I mean, it still happens in college and high school, but no, you may see no, a Gene Mingo type. And do you think there'll ever be a, Right. And you think there'll ever be a time to where – Remember, at one point, there was a time where the kicker meant that the kicker was the punter in the place kicker. Yes, he was. Several guys used to do that. Don Chandler used to do it for the Giants in Green Bay. Uh, Joe Jury did it uh, for the old Pittsburgh uh, Steelers years ago. Uh, Frank Correll was the last one to do it when he played for Los Angeles. These guys will save a spot on your roster. You can, you know, give to somebody else if you need another position. You don't need to worry about a punter because you've got guys that can do it both. Right. But it doesn't seem like, you know, there's anyone out there doing that now. And I know no, there were. Mike I know. Do. Yeah, but Mike well, well, have do that. That's good. And because I know that the Broncos had a. This is how Matt Prater got to be the kicker on the team, the uh, number one kicker, but he used to be just the kickoff kicker. Right. Which I thought was very weird. And I know a number right. of teams still do that. Right, Indianapolis does it with uh, Matthew. Yeah. He'll handle the kickoffs. But uh, now you've got a specialist specialist. You've got a guy for kickoffs, a guy for field goals, uh, and a guy for punting. So hopefully one of those guys can do both. Yeah, that would be great. What do you see as far as – I'll let you go after this, but what do you see as far as the future in the NFL, as far as the next, the next step in kicking? What do you see? I think you're going to see somebody break the 70-yard field goal mark. I think Kankowski is one guy that's <laughs> capable of doing that. Oh, yeah. I think in, in it's, it's going to probably be in Denver. Yes. Yes, it will. 
And I think at some point before Janikowski is done playing in Denver, I think you'll see him get a shot at that. I think so, because he did hit a 62-yarder or 65-yarder, 62-yarder in Denver. uh, uh, 65 is an old dinner. 64 is the record. Right. So So I think Janikowski hit a 62-yarder out there. Yes, he did. Yeah, so it could happen. There have only been... There have only been two field goals attempted from 70 yards or more. One was 77, and the other one was 79. And, uh, of course, they, they they fell short, but the 77 yarder didn't fall short by much. That's amazing. That, that's really something. But it's going to happen in Denver. So those of you listening, you know, folks that listen to the show in Colorado, you heard it here first. So you're going to see a 70 yarder out there. We know that. But, Rick, just thank you so much for being on it. If anyone wants to contact you and contact you about the school and all, because I know I have a number of folks who have young, you know, young foot, aspiring football players and junior high, high school who may utilize your camp, what, how can they reach you? Greg, I, I have a spot on Facebook called the Cape Bear Kicking Academy. That's where they can reach me. All the info is there. All right. That sounds good. So, Rick, thank you so much for being on. I like to hope to meet you sometimes. You've written again. You've written a great book on the history of place kicking. Thank you so well, much again, for doing thank that. You, thank you. Thank you Thanks so for much for being on. All right. Thanks. You take care. You too, Greg. Bye bye. And again, that was Rich Consalves. Consalves. Sorry, <laughs> Rich Consalves with the book "Place Kicking in the NFL History and Analysis." It's on McFarland Press. And it took, you know, I've been wanting to have this guy on for a number of years because the book is really something. I mean, if you don't, if you're in the kickers, then that's like a really underground, you know, just a, something as far as a lot of um, NFL fans that they really don't get into kicking. But if you want to learn about the whole history up until 2000, because he goes up until 2006 in this book. This came out two years ago, and they'll probably eventually update it. This is a book to check out. This is it. But we're going to get to some music here, and we're going to play, you know, I'm going to get you some more new music here. And this is a off the album for you with love. I'm going to do it again. Uh, Cecily McLaurin Salvin, I think she is the, she's just amazing. And I'm going to play, this is the old West Side Story song, West Side Story song um, Something's Coming. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Come cannonballing down through the sky, gleaming its side, bright as a rose. 
Got a feeling there's a miracle too Gonna come true coming to me Could it be? Yes, it could Something's coming, something good If I can wait Something's coming, I don't know what it is, but it is gonna be great. With a click, with a shock, phone will jingle, door will knock, open the latch. Something's coming, don't know when, but it's soon, catch the moon, one-handed catch Around the corner Or whistling down the river Come on, deliver
something, come on in, don't be shy, meet a gal, pull up a chair. The air is coming, and something great is coming,
and they put her in a Nazi concentration camp. And she got out of there. She was never the same, never could really perform like she did once before. She ended up passing at the young age of 50, she was about 52 in, like, 1956. And just a, but an amazing performer prior to all that. Just And if you don't know her, and I didn't know her until I saw this interview with Cecilia, but, yeah, check her out. And I'll be playing more of her songs on the Root & Root show from time to time because that's what this show is all about. Learning about the roots of different music as well as learning the root of different issues around that are affecting us and sometimes even ones that are just uh, entertaining like we did earlier with our interview with um, Mr. Gonzalez about his book on place kicking in the, in the uh, pro, pro game in the NFL. But I'm going to play right now another new performer. It's been around a little bit, but she's getting some notoriety now. Her name is Tony Red, and I'm going to play her cut. It's called That's the Way, and then I'm going to play the cut of the person who she admired, and you can hear it in her voice, but I'm just going to play Tony Red first. So let's say that on the Root and Root Show. Like your positive embrace tells me that it's okay. You will always be right there holding me. That's the way you turn me around. You lift me up so high. I touch the sky. That's the way.
interpreted by the amazing, the incomparable, the one and only legendary Phyllis Hyman. And I played her because before that I played the song That's the Way by Tony Red, and her inspiration was Phyllis Hyman. If you remember, you know, listening to the songs, you can hear that in Tony Red's voice. She definitely listened to the Phyllis Hyman songbook because this in her voice, and she's a great performer, and she's getting more and more recognition, but she still needs more recognition, really support her. She's doing, you know, just a wonderful performer in person and on on CD, so check her out, Tony Red. And also, that was Kirk Whalem playing the sax on that Tony Red song, so I hope you enjoyed that on the Root and Root Show. And we're going to go now to my favorite, one of my, I should say one of my favorite, CDs in quite a long time, and I played a cut from this on my last show, and I think this is the CD, this guy here is turning and changing jazz, this is like one of the innovators and changing music in general, and I'm talking about the amazing Kamisi Washington, and he's on saxophone here, and he's got this orchestra He's got violins, and he's got two drummers. He's got a choir, everything. And I I can't wait to see him in person. You know, if he comes to your neighborhood, please, your community, just go see him. Because that CD he has out, the three-CD set, the epic is just monumental. It's just amazing. So I'm going to play from that CD, the epic. I'm going to play the message. So let's hear the message, because he's delivering the messages for the future of music. So let's hear the message by Kamisi Washington on the Root and Root Show.
duck it, y'all It's respect for this tomorrow Put my back against the wall How many leaders you said you needed Then left them for dead Is it Moses, is it you, Newton, or Detroit Red Is it Martin Luther, JFK, Shooter, you assassin Is it Jackie, is it Jesse Oh, I know it's Michael Jackson Oh, when shit hit the fan Is you still a fan? When shit hit the fan Is you still a fan? That nigga gave up Billy Jean You say he touched those kids? When shit hit the fan Is you still a fan? The ghost of Mandela, hold my flow, they prevail it. Let my word be your earth and move, you consume every message. As I leave this army, make room for mistakes and depression. And if you ride with me, nigga, let me ask this question, nigga. I remember you was conflicted. Misusing your influence Sometimes I did the same Abusing my power full of resentment Resentment that turned into a deep depression Found myself screaming in the hotel room I didn't want to self-destruct The evils of Lucy was all around me So I went running for answers Until I came home But that didn't stop survivor's guilt Going back and forth trying to convince myself the stripes I earned. Or maybe how A1 my foundation was. But while my loved ones was fighting a continuous war back in the city, I was entering a new one. A war that was based on apartheid and discrimination. Made me want to go back to the city and tell the homies what I learned. The word was respect. Just because you wore a different game color than mine's doesn't mean I can't respect you as a black man. Forgetting all the pain and hurt we caused each other in these streets. If I respect you, we unify and stop the enemy from killing us. But I don't know. I'm no mortal man. Maybe I'm just another nigga. Shit, and that's all I wrote. I was going to call it another nigga, but it ain't really a poem. I just felt like it's something you probably could relate to. Other than that, now that I finally got a chance to holler at you, I always wanted to ask you about a certain situation, about a metaphor, actually. Uh, you spoke on the ground. What you mean by that? What the ground represent? The ground is going to open up and swallow the evil. Right. That's how I see it. My world is born. I see, and the ground is a symbol for the poor people. Right. The poor people is going to open up this whole world and swallow up the rich people. Because the rich people are going to be so fat and, mm-hmm. and uh, they're going to be so appetizing. You know what I'm saying? Wealthy. Appetizing. The poor are going to be so hungry. poor and hungry. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be like, you know what I'm saying? There might be some cannibalism out this month. <laughs> they might eat the rich. You know what I'm saying? All right, so let, let me ask you this then. Do you see yourself as. Somebody that's rich or somebody that made the best of their own opportunities? I see myself as a natural-born hustler, a true hustler in every sense of the word. I took nothing. I took the opportunities. I worked at the, the most menial and degrading job and built myself up so I can get it to where I owned it. Uh, I went from having somebody manage me to me hiring the person that works my management company. Right. I changed everything. I realized my destiny in a matter of five years, you know what I'm saying, and made myself a millionaire. Right. I made I made millions for a lot of people. Now it's time to make millions for myself, you know what I'm saying? I made millions for the record companies. I made millions for these movies. Movie companies now make millions for, for us. Mm. 
and through your different avenues of success, how would you say you manage to keep a level of sanity? By my faith in God, by my faith in the game, and by my faith in all all good things come to those that stay true. Right. You know what I'm saying? And and, and it, it was happening to me for a reason. You know what I'm saying? I was noticing shit. I was I was punching the right buttons, and it was happening. So it's no problem. You know, I mean, it's a problem, but I'm not going to let them know. Hmm. I'm going to go straight through. Would you consider yourself a, a fighter at heart or somebody that, <laughs> somebody that only reacts when they back is against the wall? Shit, I like to think that in every opportunity I've ever been uh, threatened, with resistance, I, it's been met with resistance, and not only me, but it goes down my family tree. You know what I'm saying? It's in my veins to fight back. All right, well, how long you think it take before niggas be like, we fighting the war? I'm fighting the war. I can't win, and I want to lay it all down. In this country, a black man only have like five years we can exhibit maximum strength. And that's right now, while you a teenager, while you still strong, while you still want to lift weights, while you still want to shoot back. Because once you turn 30, it's like they take the heart and soul out of a man, out of a black man in this country. And you don't want to fight no more. And if you don't believe me, you can look around. You don't see no loudmouth 30-year-old motherfuckers. That's crazy. Because me being one of your offsprings of, of the legacy you left behind, I can truly tell you that it's nothing but turmoil going on. So I wanted to ask you, what you think is the future for me and my generation today? I think that niggas is tired of grabbing shit out the stores. And next time it's a riot, it's going to be like uh, bloodshed. For real. And I don't think America know that. I think America think we was just playing. It's going to be some more playing. But it ain't going to be no playing. It's going to be murder. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be like like Nat Turner, 1831, mm-hmm. up in this motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. going to happen. That's crazy, man. In my opinion, the only hope that we kind of have left is music and, and vibrations. A lot of people don't understand how important it is. You know, sometimes I can like get behind a mic and I don't know what type of energy I'm going to push out or where it comes from. It trip me out sometimes. Because it's spirit. We ain't even really rapping. We just letting our dead homies tell stories for us. Yeah. I wanted to read one last thing to you. It's actually something a good friend had wrote describing my world. It says, The caterpillar is a prisoner to the streets that conceived it. Its only job is to eat or consume everything around it in order to protect itself from this mad city. While consuming this environment, the caterpillar begins to notice ways to survive. One thing it notices is how much the world shuns him but praises the butterfly. The butterfly represents the talent, the thoughtfulness, and the beauty within the caterpillar. But having a harsh outlook on life, the caterpillar sees the butterfly as weak and figures out a way to pimp it to its own benefits. Already surrounded by this mad city, the caterpillar goes to work on the cocoon which institutionalizes him. He can no longer see past his own thoughts. He's trapped. While trapped inside these walls, certain ideas take root such as going home and bringing back new concepts to this mad city. The result? Wings begin to emerge, breaking the cycle of feeling stagnant. Finally free, the butterfly sheds light on situations that the caterpillar never considered, ending an internal struggle. 
Although the butterfly and caterpillar are completely different, they are one and the same. What's your perspective on that?
up With so much heat it's hard for us to pick the first single It don't matter cause I'm underground anyway Rich bone, bitch call and fly any day You dirty niggas, y'all too whack to dance Y'all need to ease up off that down for y'all slit y'all pants And leave that up to my niggas Young fly niggas getting down Do or die niggas, don't try niggas I changed my mind, I don't want your bitch Cause sorry ass women just don't get rich You can keep her I'd rather have a Fifi bag because it's cheaper You can't come up for air now, I get steeper And my hold is so cold, it's a sleeper So pass the reefer And to you false ballin' niggas, just grab your crotches But if you pay, nigga, pat your pockets Show yeah. you got your
as I pondered the thought of evolving as an artist. I was inside of my office meditating in the darkness. An uncomfortable pounding was hitting in my chest. When the patient walked in, I was sitting at my desk. As my thoughts reached its height, the room became bright. Then I stood up and slapped him for turning on the light. Then I told him to be seated as he started to explain how the negative influences had targeted his brain. The ratchetness defeated my ability to fight it. I know that it's atrocious, but somehow I've grown to like it. In one minute, I've deciphered the symptoms. Shut up and listen, you've been poisoned and conditioned through audio repetition in media, false religions and visual exhibitions. The medicine to the sickness requires no prescription. I opened up a cabinet, a container was revealed, and I told him to be still, lay back and take this pill. What are you trying to do? I'm going to deprogram you. What are you going to do? I'm going to deprogram you. No, just let me go, I can't stand you, doctor, damn you. You'll thank me when I'm through, I'm going to deprogram you. What are you trying to do? I'm trying to deprogram you. What are you going to do? I'm going to deprogram you. No, just let me go. I can't stand you, doctor. Damn you. You'll thank me when I'm through. Just let me deprogram you. It was obvious his mind was rejecting because he was choking. Three seconds after he took it, his body started convulsing. I've been doing this for years. I'm trained. I'm not a novice. So I recognized quickly an exorcism was in progress. The process wasn't clean. He was harder to redeem. This was one of the most extreme cases I'd ever seen. I expect a little resistance, but never a rejector. Hooked his brain up to this thing that showed his thoughts on a projector screen. Every idea and dream he ever dreamed Told my secretary Jean to bring me a nectarine As I ate it, I sit back and let the method take its course It rewound back, eventually landing at the source When the needle spiked hard, I got anxious I saw how the dangerous language came through his subconscious chambers Initiating gradual changes that were rendering him brainless The power blew and shorted out the main switch What are you trying to do? I'm going to deprogram you What are you going to do? I'm going to deprogram you No, just let me go, I can't stand you, doctor, damn you You'll thank me when I'm through I'm going to deprogram you. What are you trying to do? I'm trying to deprogram you. What are you going to do? I'm going to deprogram you. No, just let me go. I can't stand you, doctor. Damn you. You'll thank me when I'm through. Just let me deprogram you. My maintenance coordinator power the generator. Then I place them in the great situational simulator. Feel this conscious with both beneficial and nonsense. Feature good and evil and monitor his responses. With weaker content, his vessel paraded about. Anything positive, he regurgitated it out. I leaned over the table. The screen don't let it break you. This fake music was specially designed to overtake you. The superficial nature of this garbage I reveal. It's an audio mirage. This stuff is not even real. It's only a spell they sent to keep your true potential in the basement. The myth is strategic radio placement. I thought it would get better, but then I saw no chances. He started yelling, turn up, and doing funny dances. He seemed to be getting worse than he was when he came in. I hollered for my intern to come help me restrain him. He would die if I couldn't stop the ignorance from raining. The clock was ticking down, only two minutes remaining. To save him, I was racing, but he gave no indication. My track record's impeccable, I've never lost the patience. So failure, I never knew. Each second, the pressure grew. Came to the conclusion there was only one thing left to do. He's nearly a vegetable, I have to handle this directly. Laid on the table next to him, told my intern to connect me and effectively inject more intellect till he was stable. Similar to car batteries connected with jumper cables. But if it didn't work, I would lose all my brain fluid. My intern said, please don't. I said, shut up and do it. When he plugged me in the triad, sparks flew from the wire. The lights were flicking on and off. The room was on fire and purple. Communication after that was non-verbal. The screen said, total completion of transferal. The course that ran thorough, but something was still concerning. Inside us, both of us would lay motionless on the journey. The patient's eyes opened as the sun beamed through the window. My team started removing the cords from my temples. He raised up and said he was healed. The method's proven. They waited for me to respond. Still, I wasn't moving. They entertained the thought that I had let my tactics break me. They did everything in their power to resuscitate me. One of them read the Bible as I laid there idle. And multiple devices were used to check the vitals. 
stopped me, medicated me, but still wasn't recovering. They worked to bring me back a whole hour, but still nothing. Been grateful for my sacrifice and all of my devotion. They drove me 700 miles and placed me in the ocean. I floated out to sea as they cried and started grieving. They stayed the entire evening, said some words before leaving. They traveled home, mourning the demise of the doctor. Returned to the facility to empty out their lockers. They came back to the building, walked inside and nearly lost it. Looked down the hall and saw me watching TV in my office. Drinking a cup of coffee, relaxed, trying to chill. As the patient tried to hug me, I just handed him the bill. Everyone was like, we thought you had suffered sure disaster. I said, yes, I know. That's why you're the students and I'm the master. Now get back to work. Enjoyed that interview because you know not too many people cover this subject, and 
just happy to have him on here. I hope you uh, get that book. It's on McFarlane Press. And just, you know, just learn a little more about, you know, place kicking and, you know, field goal kicking and punting because it's something that's really not talked about that much except when the, you know, the field goal kicker wins. and How many of you can name all the punters in the NFL or on your own team? Probably, you know, probably not. How many can name some of your field goal kickers? They come and go so much, but it takes a special person to be a kicker in the NFL or a kicker in college and all high school anyway, but especially the NFL. So I hope you enjoyed that, you know, that interview as well as the music I played tonight. And, again, this is Greg Rasheed with the Root & Root Show. And if you want to follow us, a lot of people are following this program, you can go to my uh, Twitter site. That's hashtag Unifix, U-N-I-F as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam. Hashtag Unifix, then you can go to Facebook, look for Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. And that's the, there are two Greg Rashid sites on there. But go to the one that has, uh, it, it's more, dyna- it has a, a color picture of me, not a black and white picture. You know, because it's a personality site that really I'm trying to take off there, but go to that site. And also you can go to the Root and Roots uh, site on uh, blogtalkradio.com because a lot of people are leaving messages there following. If you have any ideas for future shows that you'd like me to do, people you'd like me to interview, books you'd like me to read for the show and authors to be on and newsmakers, just go to those sites and just let me know about that. But again, Greg Rasheed, Go in Love and Go in Peace, and we will see you next time on the Root and Root Show. Just remember to hug someone and just show people the respect that you want and just Help someone along the way, as Mahesh Jackson always say. If I can help somebody, my life will not be in vain. Take care. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.